0: Welcome to Morning Report Top Stories, a selection of news from RNZ's morning news programme. Well, we're going to start with some big news in the sports world, shocking news, in fact, in the motorsport world overnight. Seven-time Formula One world champion Lewis Hamilton is reportedly uh, leaving Mercedes to join Ferrari. Now, the 39-year-old joined Mercedes in 2013, winning six titles and eight Constructors' Championships with the British outfits Uh, but now despite signing a contract extension with mercedes just last year lewis hamilton is set to jump ship to the italian team in 2025 replacing uh, spaniard carlos Sainz. now the news has not yet been confirmed or denied by either ferrari or mercedes but an announcement may come in the next few hours for more we're joined by motorsport journalist chris medland hi chris this is uh, quite uh, a development
1: It is, yeah. I was not expecting when I woke up this morning to be covering this one. Uh, It's caught a lot of people by surprise and moved very quickly. But yeah, today seems to be the day that um, Lewis is on the move.
0: So what is going on here? Has he just been fed up with Mercedes, the car not being as good as he would like? What's going on?
1: I think there's a little aspect of that, yes. The last two years have been tough for Mercedes. And I think Lewis was fine with 2022 being tough. Teams do have tough years. They have spells where it just doesn't come together. But he gave a lot of feedback on what he wanted from the car for 2023, the changes he wanted to see made. And he says they weren't implemented. So I, I feel like he lost a little bit of trust in the team to listen to him and follow uh, what he wanted as such a successful and experienced driver. Um, certainly because they were struggling again last year. So uh, it was another winless season for. Not only for Lewis and Mercedes, actually, but for everyone except uh, Carlos Sainz at Ferrari, actually, uh, compared to the Red Bull team that won every other race. So uh, it was a tough, tough year. Uh, and I think at his age will be 40 when he joins Ferrari next year. If he was going to make the move, he had to make it now.
0: Is this likely to, I mean, when Mercedes that bad, I mean, is he going to have to spend another year driving for them, even though he's kind of not loyal to them?
1: Well, this is one of the things that I think it actually does show the loyalty because of the amount of time he's been there, the success he's had. The fact that this announcement's coming before the 2024 season's even started uh, gives Mercedes a lot of time to work on contingency planning. Who's going to replace him? Uh, and yeah, you, know, you can't doubt his professionalism when he's the most successful driver of all time in terms of wins, pole positions and podiums. Uh, he's going to give it everything and hope that the car is more competitive this year because that will give him a chance of adding to those records. Uh, it may well even give him a chance of fighting for a championship. But I think in his heart parts, he's not expecting to be in a title fight again this year uh, and thought it's time just to try something new towards the end of his career. But I think that relationship's going to be pretty strong uh, for the whole season and pretty positive. Uh, and yeah, you, you might see a few cracks towards the end if, it, if it's another tough season. Uh, but Mercedes was still on par with Ferrari. Fighting to be the second best team behind Red Bull the last two years. So uh, he'll still be in the mix of podiums and maybe the odd win.
0: Where does this leave uh, Carlos Sainz? I mean, is there going to be a swap or is, 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 he, is his place vulnerable given, as you say, he won a race uh, last year? Yeah, it's a
1: very good question. Um, his place isn't vulnerable based on the fact that so many drivers are out of contract next year. Um, there's loads that, that are going into the final year of their current deals uh, this season. So there's going to be a lot of movement next year. We were expecting a lot of the movement we just weren't expecting lewis to be part of it um but for science actually it did sound like there was a chance to be on the move at the end of next season anyway and yeah i think mercedes will look at him as a as a viable option he, he's a multiple race winner um he's a very strong all-rounder he, he had a really good season last year and alongside george russell who's a bit younger it would make a good pairing so uh, i could see it happening um but also there'll be other drivers lots of drivers who will want that mercedes seat. Uh, but that will then lead to different openings in different places so i, I think science will Find somewhere else to land, uh, and in some ways, it's hard for them. He had a really good, strong year last year, but you can't turn down the opportunity to sign Lewis Hamilton.
2: Mm.
0: Got to ask a, a slightly parochial question from a New Zealand perspective: Liam Lawson, if there's all this moving around of positions, any opportunities do you think for him to to lock in a spot?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I feel like Lawson's being uh, kind of set up already for. I speak at the Red Bull Junior team, who I hate to call them it, but they're called Visa Tachat RB now, um, that was Alpha AlphaTauri, who he raced for last year. And yeah, I think that's going to be uh, his seat in 2025. I think he's, he's really well lined up for a chance there. If he doesn't get one there, I think Red Bull will actually help him try and get a race seat somewhere else. And as I say, with all that movement, that's a good time to be looking for one. So uh, it was a shame he wasn't on the grid this year because he did such a great job last year filling in for injured Daniel Ricciardo. Um, I think he really impressed a lot of people did, Liam, both with his attitude and his approach, but with his performance as well. Uh, and I think, uh, yeah, you can pretty confidently say he should have a race seat in 2025 as well.
0: Very good. Thank you very much. Chris Medlin there, motorsport journalist, is talking on the, well, shock news for motorsport fans with Lewis Hamilton uh, set to jump ship in 2025
2: from Mercedes to Ferrari. Well, new research into what causes Dunedin's groundwater levels to change could help to prevent future flooding in the city. GNS Science and the Otago Regional Council have released a report this morning showing that as the sea level rises, groundwater can flood parts of Dunedin from below before there's even any inundation directly from the sea. Now, Dunedin City Council says the findings will help it to deal with the threat of flooding in low-lying south Dunedin. The manager of of South Dunedin Future Project is Jonathan Rowe, who is with us now. Kia ora, good morning. Uh, tell us, what did this research tell you about the impact of, of sea level rise in South Dunedin?
3: Good morning, um, thanks for having me on. Um, so previously we knew that groundwater was going to be a problem in South Dunedin, but what, what this new research tells us is essentially where, when and why it's going to be a problem. Um, in part because it tells us how it's going to interact with sea level rise in the future. And what that means when we get heavy rainfall.
2: So, what was the new information there or the pivotal information in terms of how you deal with that risk?
3: Um, Some of the reports showed that there's maybe less of a relationship between the oceans that's not as affected by the tides, but also sort of when some tipping tipping points are going to be um, at around 40 to 60 centimetres of sea level rise, which could be expected to occur kind of later this century, about 2075, and maybe early next century.
2: And what can you do about it?
3: Well, we can do better planning. So basically what the information enables us to do is have better conversations with the community about sort of what is happening and when. And we will, can also plan better responses. So that's whether that's on that spectrum of fight and flight. So building more kind of pumps and pipes and more infrastructure to manage the groundwater um, or looking at nature-based solutions like um, parks, wetlands, where the water could go or drain to. And we can make planning decisions about where and where, uh, where and when people can build and intensify, or when we might have to move people.
2: And does it sort of illustrate uh, where you should be going in terms of a managed retreat? Should that be happening sooner rather than later?
3: What it does is help us plan those timeframes, and we can look at areas that you know are going to be more affected by um, groundwater in the future. So we should certainly think about not intensifying those, or not continuing to build and consent in those areas, and then. Yeah, absolutely. It allows us to look at areas where, hey, um, this is going to be lower risk in the future and should we be looking at um, moving people to those areas?
2: We heard earlier in the week about the purchase of the the old race course for we park there uh, to use as some sort of uh, mitigation mechanism. Does this validate that option?
3: Absolutely. So if you look at the groundwater report. Um, Forbury Park is sort of in blinking lights there. It shows how low it is and how high the groundwater is and when that's going to emerge. So it, it's it's a high-risk high site, if you like, and the council purchasing that now enables us to sort of factor that into our plans. Do we use that for you know a wetland or, or a park or something that takes pressure off other parts of South Dunedin?
2: Appreciate your time this morning. That was the manager of South Dunedin Future Project, Jonathan Rowe, with just some new research there into Dunedin's groundwater issue.
0: Well, most New Zealanders believe they should pay for their use of vital infrastructure, uh, especially electricity and water. That's among the findings of a report released today by the Infrastructure Commission. Te Waihanga. Uh Nearly three quarters of the survey respondents thought it was fair to pay based on household use. It's General Manager of Strategy, Jeff Cooper, joins us now. Kia good morning. Kia Karen, how you doing? What was the purpose of this uh, survey?
4: Well, you know, uh, equity and fairness is, is uh, a cornerstone of how we think about infrastructure, isn't it? You know, we want to know what's fair. We spend about 16% of household income on infrastructure services. And I think it's really important for providers to be thinking what, what New Zealanders think is fair when it comes to paying for it.
0: Yeah, I mean, it stands to reason that New, many New Zealanders would, would think it logical that you pay for the amount of electricity you use, potentially pay for the amount of water you use in some areas. That's obviously a bit more controversial. But are we talking about the lines, the pipes, which are sort of more of a social infrastructure? I mean, we all pay into that, don't we?
4: Well, one thing we were trying to do here is actually um, point out that there's not as much as a distinction between these horizontal horizontal uh, infrastructure networks as you might first think, right? So we were asking uh, folks whether or not they should pay by usage and or cost to provide or by household income for roads, electricity, and water. And I think people did find it quite difficult to, to think about electricity and roads in the same way, but for providers of that infrastructure, they're very similar. <laughs> the horizontal infrastructure, they both have big operating costs associated with them, and you need to recover those if you want to maintain levels of service.
0: But I'm thinking in terms of the equity of how we all pay for the shared use of the lines to get the electricity to, to our house, and we obviously pay for what we use, but in terms of the shared use of those lines and the shared use of the pipes, because ultimately the water is kind of free, but not getting it to us.
4: That's right. It's the movement. And it's really what infrastructure is about, right? It's about moving things around a network. Uh, in this case, you know, we're moving electrons and water and sometimes dust, right, for transportation. But, but what is fair? And so we did ask these, these questions because we wanted to sort of solicit views and understand what people think was fair. And As it turned out, almost three in four uh, New Zealanders thought that usage was, in fact, a fair way to pay when it comes to electricity and water, as you've mentioned. When it comes to roading infrastructure quite interesting. Usage was still the most com- commonly regarded as the fairest, but the numbers were much lower, right? They were much closer to sort of one and three. Uh, and the takeaway there was that New Zealanders don't think any any mechanism is fair when it comes to paying for, for roads, but usage was still the highest.
0: Why do you think New Zealanders see roads differently than those other uh, key bits of infrastructure?
4: Oh, look, the most common thing you hear is that we've already paid for them, right? They're already there, so why are we paying twice? And of course, the the the, the the message that commissions always try to get across here is that operating costs never go away, that maintenance should make up 60% of all of the funds uh, in, in infrastructure, and it's no different in, in horizontal roading infrastructure. Uh, and you've got options for how how you fund those. But of course, the current system with Fedramp is, of course, a usage charging system, right? So uh, that is the current the current system that we have. I think where we go to from here is thinking about this this fourth category that we ask about, which is time of use, right? That for network providers, actually, the time that you're using the network uh, is really consequential to to the functioning of it. And of course, I'm talking about congestion. Uh, cost time, time of use uh, charging in some of our bigger cities. And and what we find there is that uh, whilst those numbers are pretty low, I think that the overall number in New Zealand is about 22%, in the areas that have congestion, uh, the acceptance for time of use charging is much higher. So one in three Aucklanders, for instance, uh, accept that time of use charging would be a fair way to go. And and what's interesting about that is that that is a, a number which is higher than what we see in other cities that have implemented congestion charging, pre-congestion charging, mm. if you take my
0: drift there. I do. Yeah. Uh, These survey results, do you think they would add some weight to the calls, for example, for water meters, particularly, I mean, Wellington's grappling with this at the moment, other places probably are as well. Some have made the jump already. What do you think?
4: Well, I think so often you hear that you can't do volumetric charging, you can't do usage charging because it's not seen as fair. And I think that the results here are saying actually, you know, close to three and four New Zealanders are saying they do view it as fair uh, to pay for what you use. Of course, there's there's ways to mitigate uh, further effects. You know, you can think about block tariffs and increasing so that you're increasing costs after a certain amount of usage. That's fine. But putting that aside, um, I think these results, give us a a little bit more colour on on what Mm. people think actually is fair. Tell me
0: this, here's a curly one. What happens with solar? So if somebody's generating their own electricity, they don't need the grid, they don't need the lines because they can generate their own. In fact, they may even give it back, but that's another matter. But what what do you do then? Because if you have a whole lot of people producing their own electricity, they don't need to pay for the grid, fair enough. But someone's got to pay for the grid, and those who do need it are going to end up paying more.
4: Well, this is exactly the challenge with distributed energy resources, right? That as the cost of um, off-grid infrastructure services is falling, it's going to start eroding uh, the, the need for, for network infrastructure. I think we're a long way away from that, right? When you look at the marginal cost of providing infrastructure on a network, it's very low compared to these uh, off-grid options, but the cost of those are falling tremendously. Uh, and what that means is that off-grid solutions, for particularly for um, Dispersed, more regional places are going to become far more competitive than, um, than than stretching out the network, which is very expensive to get to those dispersed locations. So, I think it will become more of a feature in certain places in New Zealand. Absolutely,
0: very good. Thank you very much. That is uh, Jeff Cooper, the general manager of strategy, uh, with some interesting findings from the Infrastructure Commission.
2: Well, New Zealand is a step closer to deciding whether it will involve itself with the second pillar of the AUKUS security deal. Australian officials will cross the ditch later this year to brief the government on the agreement which involves a partnership between Australia, the US and the UK in the Indo-Pacific region. The development was revealed at the first meeting of Australia and New Zealand's Defence and Foreign Affairs Ministers in Melbourne. Our political reporter Katie Scotcher was there.
5: New Zealand and Australia side by side, stressing the strength of the trans-Tasman relationship.
4: There is no country in the world with whom we are closer than New
5: Zealand. We are the closest of friends, but we are more than that. We are family. We are stronger when we work together. Working together, a key focus of the inaugural meeting of New Zealand and Australia's Foreign Affairs and Defence Ministers, the symbolic sit-down they say took place in the most challenging strategic environment in decades. We face a world of increased strategic competition and challenges. Increasingly, the rules-based order which we rely on as democratic countries is under threat. In response, the ministers have instructed New Zealand and Australia's militaries to increase their collaboration. Australia's Defence Minister Richard Marles says that will include regular trans-Tasman war-fighting exercises and communication between senior officers.
0: We are committed to constructing two defence forces which are
4: seniors in the way in which we are operating.
5: Defence Minister Judith Collins says there will be more discussion between the two countries before they invest in military hardware. Everything to do with defence purchases is expensive and what we can't afford to do is to go off and commit to large purchases without making sure that it's going to fit in uh, with our ally and to make sure that when Australia is... Undertaking, undertaking its purchases, that is there something that we should be doing at the same time. There is also potential for New Zealand and Australia to work together through the AUKUS arrangement. The deal will see Australia eventually supplied with nuclear-powered submarines. But there is a second pillar focused on cutting-edge defence technology, Richard Miles has instructed his Australian officials to brief the New Zealand government on it later this year. We're
0: open to uh,
4: the idea of Pillar 2 being open to um, some uh, other countries who may be interested.
5: And New Zealand is. But details on the second pillar of AUKUS and what New Zealand's involvement with it could look like are scarce. Judith Collins thinks it could present good opportunities. I think there will be an opportunity for New Zealand to play its role. I'm particularly looking to New Zealand businesses and scientists and saying, how can they be involved? Is it in New Zealand's best interest? If it can be, um, then let's see what we can do. New Zealand is unlikely to get officially involved with AUKUS any time soon. It's not clear when the government will be briefed on the arrangement by Australian officials, and even once that has happened, there will no doubt be further work required. But the first joint meeting of the two countries, Foreign Affairs and Defence Ministers, marked a shift in that direction. The second sit-down will take place in New Zealand next year. That was our political reporter Katie Scotcher.
0: The opposition is demanding to know if the tobacco industry is behind the documents the Associate Health Minister sent to officials suggesting a freeze on tobacco excise tax. Casey Costello has been under increasing pressure since she told RNZ she had not specifically sought advice on freezing the tax when she had. The papers also say that nicotine is as harmful as caffeine and the tobacco industry is on its knees the Minister won't say who wrote those specific documents, uh, and Labour is calling for her to resign. She declined to come on the programme this morning, but we're joined by RNZ investigative journalist Guyan Espiner, who first broke this story. Uh, good morning, Guyan. Kia ora, good morning. Let's go back to last week, uh, when you initially broke this story, and start with those ministry documents before we get to the notes. Because I see yesterday the likes of David Seymour, who was speaking on behalf of the Prime Minister yesterday, saying, oh, it's possible... Casey Costello had misinterpreted RNZ's questioning and RNZ had misinterpreted the answers. I mean, just explain to us what you were doing in that initial reporting and whether that is a credible excuse. Yes, well,
6: we sought an interview with Minister Costello about her intentions. For the portfolio and I had an an idea, I'd been doing some soundings about some of the things that I understood that she was doing and I put to her quite categorically that I understand you're looking for a three-year freeze on CPI-related excise increases for smoked tobacco. It's worth going over her answer. She said quote I've had no discussions on that at all like that's it's not even something specific I specifically sought advice on and then I haven't looked at a freeze on the excise at all so it doesn't leave a lot of wriggle room there it's a fairly categorical denial we were then able to obtain and view a Ministry of health document which said that she had sought this advice it said that she had uh, proposed also to freeze the excise on smoked tobacco for three years so it, it, it is difficult difficult to, to bridge the gap between what she told us initially and what is in those documents. It's worth pointing out also that she uh, had also denied another of the plans that the Ministry of Health documents shows that she was looking at, and that was the $30,000 fine on selling vaping products to minors. So there were uh, more than one instance there where there was a big gap between what she was telling us and what was in the Ministry of Health document.
0: Okay, so that was the initial phase of this story, in a sense. Yesterday, the notes which you referred to in your story, what exactly are they? So
6: this the, the, the origin of this is what's now in question. I suppose in, in a policy development process, right? The, the minister has sent Ministry of Health some things that she wanted to be looked into. Now th- these are a, a range of different things. She's saying that these are not her notes and that she didn't write them. But curiously she can't tell us who did um so w- when when we published the story, we finally got a response from Minister Costello's office saying uh, they were not my proposals or notes, they were not things I had written. it's misleading and wrong to characterize them in this way. This was general information I had provided officials. And I'm sure they can verify this. So she she acknowledges that she sent, she provided the Ministry of Health this information. This is uh, quite a range of things uh, from vaping and tobacco, including the excise uh, tax things that we've talked about. Uh, when I sought clarification from Minister Costello's office, um, her spokesman said that this... I said, well, who did write the documents then? And he said that it was existing material. Uh, and I said, well, you, you know, <laughs> who put it together? He said that he thought that she'd collated it, but but he wasn't sure. Um, and when she was on her feet in the House yesterday, she said that she did not know who the author of these documents were, which seems to me a fairly striking uh, thing to say, if that's what you've sent to the Ministry of
0: Health for uh, policy development. The other aspect to that is what was sent as an associate health minister and this is the argument that Aisha Viral has been raising that these are what you know the idea that caffeine and nicotine are are equivalent or that the tobacco industry is on its knees
6: well, yes, it is a pretty interesting read, the, the information that um, Minister Costello sent. Uh, the, the quote there is, nicotine is as harmful as caffeine, but its association with smoking has seen the poorest punished by these huge taxes, and she goes on from there. And look, to be fair to her, I, I suppose the intent in, in, in that possibly <laughs> is that it's the combustible element of the, the cigarettes. It's the danger. That's the carcinogen. That's that's what's uh, going to do you the real damage, whereas the nicotine uh, in its as we've seen, which is why vaping has has been seen as safer than smoking combustible cigarettes. I think that's what she's getting at there, but it's possibly a little bit of an unfortunate way to phrase it, and she's got to to issue with that. But again, uh, it it really comes back to to that question, well, uh, who has written this document And who has provided it? Someone has to have collated it. (laughs) You know, I mean, researchers, journalists, politicians will curate and uh, gather things from everywhere all the time, but they hopefully source their material and tell you where it's come from. Um, So I think that's the big question, as your intro
0: said, that that Labour is seeking the answer to, is, is who wrote the document? Yes, and Christopher Luxon yesterday was now or has now sought assurances from New Zealand First and ACT that they haven't received any uh, donations from the tobacco industry, and in fact, I think Seymour, uh, David Seymour, said yesterday he was confident, and he would have been speaking potentially as uh, on behalf of the prime minister with Winston Peters uh, overseas at, at Parliament. But he said no undue influence on the policies of this government by the tobacco industry and he said he was confident there was no undue influence. So this has become a major headache for Christopher Luxon. It has um, and look
6: first up we've got no evidence that there was undue influence and no evidence that uh, any, any money's exchanged hands or anything like that so, so let's, let's uh, get that out um, first up. Um, there are um, some, some links of some senior New Zealand First people who went on to work for Philip Morris. Um, that's on public record, we've, we've reported that. Minister Costello herself has, has acknowledged that she needs to be careful, given that there are those senior people who went on to work for the tobacco industry. Um, but yes, uh, Christopher Luxon's in an interesting position because of course, um, you know, this is a minister who's a New Zealand First Minister, um, and uh, he's going to have to be uh, careful about not setting the, uh, upsetting the apple cart in terms of Winston Peters. So
0: he, he's uh, having to tread pretty carefully uh, in, in this matter. Just finally, where the story goes, in terms of, uh, you'd imagine it might come back in Parliament next week with more questions, the opposition's unlikely to let this go. But it will centre around that issue of the notes, presumably, because that's a little bit unusual. You know, it seems a bit strange. It's
6: Look, in my experience um, of of watching and covering politics over many years, uh, it, it, it is... It is very unusual, Um, and I think when there's a big unanswered question like that, that is going to she's going to have to clear that up, isn't she? Um, And and tell us where that document came from. I'm pretty sure we're on a uh, recess next week from Parliament. Maybe she'll get a break from that. It's been a pretty hard time for her. And you remember she's a first term MP, and it's really been a baptism of fire. But I think um, she's going to be continued to be uh,
0: dogged by that question: who wrote the document? Guy Nespiner, thank you very much for that. RNZ investigative journalist.
2: And we're now joined by Otago University International Relations Professor Robert Patman, who was listening to Katie's report. Kia ora, good morning, welcome to the programme.
7: Morena Ingrid.
2: What were the significant commitments or comments to come out of the Melbourne meetings in your mind?
7: Well, I think the the first one that really hits you is the fact that the the, the discussions about joining Pillar 2 of AUKUS are very much open and exploratory. And uh, an Australian delegation ha- it will be visiting uh, New Zealand over the next year. We're not quite sure when. And we're not quite sure who they will brief, because uh, uh, if a delegation is simply going to come over to brief the government and its officials, then that means that, that uh, slightly under erodes uh, the bipartisan quality of New Zealand's foreign policy, which Mr Luxon seemed very keen to retain during the election.
2: What are the main obstacles in terms of our joining Pillar 2?
7: Um, I I think there are, first of all, the optics. Um, Our brand globally since 1985 has been to champion non-nuclear security. And um, while the government, I'm sure, is sincere in saying that signing up to Pillar 2 wouldn't erode New Zealand's commitment, in the eyes of others in ASEAN. Which is, uh, uh, is is governed or characterised by a nuclear weapons free agreement in 1995, and also the Pacific Island states, which also has a nuclear weapons free zone under the Treaty of Rarotonga. It would look like New Zealand is backtracking because, after all, you may you know while New Zealand may say it is it's staying absolutely true to its non nuclear security approach, it's nevertheless. Pillar 2 is part of an agreement in which nuclear power submarines is being transferred to Australia. So New Zealand, it may blur New Zealand's global brand, and that could be a diplomatic blow. Second thing is it may look to many countries in the Indo-Pacific that we are retreating to the Anglosphere, a tight alliance of English-speaking countries.
2: Well, are we, in fact, doing that? Because there was... You know, talk about the need for a much closer alignment, but certainly a, a degree of urgency there with working with Australia at least uh, and not being, you know, a benign environment, the rules-based order being under threat. So is this the way we're going and is, do we have to go that way? <clears throat>
7: um, I'm, I'm interested about Judith Collins' comment that the rules-based order is under threat. Um, Who's it under threat from? Well, we normally think of China, an authoritarian state, and Russia, which has illegally invaded Ukraine. But you see, the AUKUS is all about extending or strengthening the rules-based order in the Pacific, but a key member of AUKUS, the United States, since the appalling terrorist attack on Israel on the 7th of October, has actually been weakening the rules-based order in the Middle East because it's been giving unconditional support to a military response by Israel, which, according, which has led to an ICJ ruling, the International Court of Justice, because it will, Israel has not been seen by many countries to respect international law. So New Zealand has to weigh up carefully here whether AUKUS will take New Zealand in the direction it wants to travel. It's a momentous decision for this country going forward. And uh, I don't think uh, it, it, caref- it, it may be the government's just going to think this in you know, through very carefully. Uh, And of course, there's the relationship with China. China's made it quite clear um, that it doesn't want um, uh, to see AUKUS expanded. Uh, That doesn't mean that should influence our decision, but it could have implications for our trade relationship with China. Mm.
2: Just finally, uh, what about the messaging coming out around security in the Pacific region?
7: Well, again, the Pacific, uh, I think uh, Australia and New Zealand are very uh, Determined it came out in their joint statement to deepen their involvement in the Pacific. there is a concern about chinese involvement there. Um, they also indicated and I think this is a really good thing uh, that climate change is, uh, is seen by the Pacific island states as the number one uh, national security challenge and it's incumbent on Australia and New Zealand to help those countries face up to that challenge I, I think there's a danger if New Zealand and Australia try to impose a sort of uh, great power rivalry paradigm on these countries, these countries reject the idea that they're pawns in some sort of great power struggle between the United States and China. Their concern is to deal with national uh, climate change, which is their number one threat to their very existence.
2: Appreciate your analysis this morning. That was Otago University International Relations Professor Robert Patman.
7: You've been listening to Morning Report Top
2: Stories.